invite you to turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 5, where we will continue through our evening sermon series in the book of Judges. Last week, we read about God's deliverance over Jabin, the king of Canaan, and his general Sisera. And this evening, we will now hear the song that Deborah and Barak sang in celebration of that victory. But before we hear God's word to us this evening from Judges 5, let us once again call upon our God in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you that you are still the God who delivers his people. We thank you for your word, which has recorded for us these many stories of deliverance that are all part of the ultimate story of your deliverance in Jesus Christ. So we pray that you would continue to give us hearts that are filled with joy, the salvation you have worked for us, and may our voices be added to the chorus of your people who have been singing songs of praise and thanksgiving for thousands of years. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this evening from Judges chapter 5. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way. To the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates march the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir marched down the commanders, and from Zebul Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. 
The princes of Issachar came with Deborah and Issachar faithful to Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. The kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away, the ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon. March on my soul with might. Then loud beat the horse's hooves with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse, Merah, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet, he sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet, he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Out of the window, she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man. Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera. Spoil of dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. But your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. As I said earlier, Judges chapter 4 recounts God's salvation over Jabin, the king of Canaan, and Sisera, his general, through Deborah, Barak, through a, a flood, a, a mighty storm, an earthquake that gave God's people victory, through jail and her faithfulness to strike down Sisera when he came to her tent. We were... Given this deliverance from a historical perspective in chapter 4, in chapter 5 now, Deborah and Barak and all of God's people celebrate this same deliverance, but now from a more theological perspective. This is a song of praise to God for his salvation. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day. 
Now, the immediacy of this song following on the heels of the narrative reminds us that of all the ways we ought to respond to God's deliverance, to his gracious answers to our prayers, the immediate response should always be praise and thanksgiving. Praise befits the upright, the psalmist writes. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. The psalmist writes again. Yet I confess that in my own life, as God delivers me from one trial, as he answers one prayer, as he alleviates one fear, I often immediately just move on to start worrying and fretting about the next one. It is true we have many needs and concerns, but we ought to learn from Judges 5 that it is good to take regular breaths and sing God's praise before we start worrying about the next problem. God saves. So Deborah and Barak sing God's praise. And yet their song is not directed to God alone. Biblical singing never is. Yes, we sing to God, but we also sing to one another, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, as Paul tells the Colossians. In, in addition to God, therefore, this song is sung to two categories of people. It is sung to God's enemies, and it is sung to God's friends. This is succinctly captured in the closing verse of the song, verse 31. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. This is a song both for God's enemies and for his friends. There are therefore two categories of people, and as you see, there are two ends for these people. God's enemies perish, that is their end. God's friends rise. There are also two commands for these two types of people. God's enemies, described in verse 3 as kings and princes, are commanded to hear, to listen to this song. Depending on how you understand verse 10, I understand it as speaking to God's friends, to his people of all societal classes, rich and poor. They are told to tell of it. They are to sing and repeat the triumphs of the Lord wherever they gather. Again, therefore, this song is both for God's enemies and for his friends. It has a message and instruction for both. Therefore, we will first listen to this song from the perspective of God's friends, and then we will listen again from the perspective of God's enemies. For God's friends, this is first a song of hope. After the initial introduction and call to worship, verses 4 through 9 describe the setting of God's deliverance. And within this setting, the song contrasts Almighty God on one hand with his helpless people on the other. 
First, in verses 4 and 5, we have the description of God marching in the form of an earthquake and thunderstorm on his way to go and deliver his people. He comes from the southeast and in a way reminiscent of his glorious appearance at Mount Sinai. In many ways, this language, this description recalls God's appearance at Sinai and then the people's entrance from the wilderness into Canaan. This description also challenges the Canaanite supposition that Baal is the god of storms and that he is the one who rules in Canaan. For God will use a storm in Canaan to defeat this so-called God of storm and of Canaan. The implication is clear. God is the only God. And he is not bound by anything. His power and his presence was not limited to Sinai in the wilderness. The God who had rescued Israel at the Red Sea was the same God who could rescue them by the waters of Megiddo and the river Kishon. The God who had descended upon Mount Sinai is the same God who could descend upon Mount Tabor. For God is not bound by any physical location or historical moment. He is God in every place and in every time. He is a mobile, marching God, and he will go wherever his people need him to deliver them. Neither is God limited by any cultural, religious, or sociological condition of his people or of the society in which they dwell. For you notice in verses 6 through 9 that the condition of Israel is painted with very bleak strokes. These were dark days. The oppression of Jabin was so great that the Israelites could not travel on any of the main highways. They had to take secret back roads to get anywhere. Most of Israel just remained huddled in their villages. At the same time, they are wallowing in religious idolatry and syncretism. They are beyond weak. Though there are 40,000 soldiers, they have no weapons and they are helpless to defend themselves. But the hope for God's people is again that God can save his people anywhere, anytime, with anyone. And let this encourage You, as your cultural context shifts, as your moment in history changes, even as the greater church waxes and wanes at times in its worship and faithfulness, no one can deny that the cultural and historical moment in the United States has drastically changed in the last 10 to 20 years. Society and morality, politics and ethics, these are drastically different than they were just a few short decades ago. The culture's view of the church is very different. Likewise, the church herself has faced great upheaval in many ways. Christians do not seem to agree very much on worship and cultural engagement. They do not always seem to agree on what the church's mission and message is. However, the strengths and weaknesses of the church, the days of plenty and of emptiness, the acceptance or opposition of society, the historical, societal, and political makeup of the country, none of these affect Almighty God and His ability to save His people. 
wherever you live, in whatever society, in whatever historical and cultural moment, God is God and he saves. He will do what he is going to do. He will do it anywhere, anytime, with anyone. As it is in a play. And you watch the, the scenery, all the things that are set up on the stage. That will change from scene to scene, but the story is the same, and the stage remains where God will display and manifest his glory. For the Lord, as it said in chapter 4, and as you see again in verses 19 through 21, routed the Canaanites. The scenery was different. The story was the same. Heaven fought against the kings of Canaan. Heaven always wins. The hope for God's helpless people, therefore, is that God saves anywhere, anytime, with anyone. Again, I've pointed out this before. You notice all of these very strange stories, very unusual weapons that are used. Ehuts, dagger, shamgars, ox goad, jails, tent peg. These repeatedly point us to the reality that God can wield anyone to save his people. It, it's not about the instrument, it's about the hand that is wielding it. And so, friend of God, this is a song of hope for you. God's hand is the hand that guides the universe, and he is guiding it for the good of his people. But friend of God, this is also a song of warning for you. And what is the warning? The warning is that to be God's friend requires obedience to God. You cannot actually love God if you do not obey God. He doesn't need you to accomplish his purposes, accomplish his purposes, but when he commands you, you always do what he commands. This is what we see in verses 13 through 18, and again to some degree in verses 23 through 30. Verses 13 through 18 list the various tribes that God called to fight through Deborah and Barak. Some of the tribes heeded the call. Some of the tribes ignored the call. Ephraim, Benjamin, Machir, standing for Manasseh, Zebulun, Issachar, Naphtali. These were faithful tribes that went out to fight. Zebulun and Naphtali are especially praised as those who risked their lives to fight. But not every tribe obeyed. Reuben spent a lot of time deliberating whether or not they should go. They had a lot of theological discussions, but at the end of the day, they decided, you know what, we're going to stay with the sheep. Protecting our flock is more important than going out and protecting God's people. We also see that Gilead determined, we're safe on the other side of the Jordan. This isn't really our fight. Our people, our tribe, we're good, so we're just going to stay over here. Dan and Asher, they were too busy with maritime trade, making money. They don't have time to go and fight, and what might happen to their profits if they go and fight? Christian, you can always rationalize and come up with, in your own mind, good reasons why you should just stay where you are and be unfaithful. 
You can spend a, a lot of time talking about Christianity and much less time actually living Christianity. God does not command us to prioritize our safety and provision. He calls us to prioritize faithfulness to him and care for one another. Christian love is by definition self-sacrificing love. So I believe that the challenge to each of us individually, I believe the challenge to Good Shepherd is that we must never be a people and never be a church that only thinks about ourselves and our little circle. Are we seeking to do whatever God calls us to do, even when that might make us uncomfortable? Are we looking for ways to serve and come alongside our brothers and sisters throughout our state, throughout our nation, throughout our world? This is one of the reasons I love being part of a denomination, because we have connections all over the nation and all over the world. We heard about some tonight. Are we praying for, are we giving our resources? Are we willing to go ourselves when God's people are in need? We must always be a mission-minded, self-sacrificing church, or there is no point in our existence. God needs to shut our doors, and we should all go somewhere else. Above all else, we must be an obedient people. We're not called to play it safe. We are called to serve. Part of the warning, therefore, is that those who may be called friends of God can be revealed as enemies of God. It didn't matter that some of these tribes could claim tribal affiliation. What mattered was whether or not they were actually living like Israelites. It didn't matter that they could claim covenant membership. They needed to live like members of the covenant. For those who didn't, they faced covenant curses instead of blessings. The so-called friends faced the end of enemies. They perished. You see verse 23, curse Meraz, says the angel of the Lord, and curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord to help to the help of the Lord against the mighty. They did not come to the help of the Lord. Perhaps they said to themselves, God is sovereign. He doesn't need my help. You're right. He doesn't need your help. But if he calls you to go, you go. We don't go into the world telling people about Jesus because we're the ones who save people. We go because that's what God sent us to do. And he said, that's how I'm going to save people. And we don't know where Meraz was, but it was most likely an Israelite town and these Israelites were cursed for their unfaithfulness. They perished as God's enemies. So Christian, do not find comfort in the fact that you call yourself a Christian, that you can claim membership in a church. It's not what makes you God's friend. You must live as God's friend, which is living in obedience to him. We must not forget Jesus' warnings. When he calls we come. There is no excuse. Remember the parable Jesus tells of the great banquet. He tells the story of a master who invited many people saying, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. 
And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry. And what did the master say? He said, for I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Jesus said, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We see that in Judges 5. Zebulun risked his life and saved it. Meraz saved his life and lost it. Jesus said, you are either for him or you are against him. Meraz was called a friend but lived like an enemy. If you do not obey your Lord, you are actually on the wrong side. For God's friends, therefore, this is first a song of hope, but it is also a song of warning. For we are reminded that God's friends are those who love him. That's literally what it says in verse 31. For God's friends, it says those who love him. Which means they do what he commands them to do. But this is also a song for God's enemies. For God's enemies, this is first a song of warning. Verse 3 commands God's enemies to listen up. And the message to them is that God always triumphs over his enemies. That is abundantly clear in verses 19 through 22. But it is especially poignant in verses 24 through 30. We get another graphic description of Sisera's death. It was drawn out in chapter 4. It's drawn out again here in chapter 5, which makes verse 31 all the more terrifying. For the author emphasizes Sisera's crushing defeat and death, and then he says, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. You could paraphrase it. May all your enemies perish. Die like Sisera. That's what the song is singing. And so Sisera's death is a warning to all God's enemies of what awaits them if they keep on rebelling against the Lord. They will not receive mercy. They will be crushed. To hear the, the rhythm of the description, it, it, it's almost like you can hear the nail being driven into the head. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet, he sank, he sank, he lay still. Between her feet, he sank, he fell. Where he sank, he fell dead. I mean, you are supposed to feel it in your heart. The message is clear. There's no escape. There's no mercy. You stay God's enemy. You perish. It's like the psalmist says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. 
Again, you can rationalize all you want and try to convince yourself this is never going to happen. But this would make you as foolish as Sisera's mother. For the delayed absence of her son is preaching to her that he has been defeated and he's not coming home. But she and her attendants come up with another explanation. They rationalize to themselves, no, he's delayed because there's just so much spoil that they have to collect. He's delayed because he's so busy collecting the treasures of war. Verse 30, he's delayed because he's too busy raping women. That's what verse 30 says. He's delayed because he's busy picking out really nice clothes for himself and for probably his mother. Sin will come up with many alternative answers to the judgment of God. It will convince itself that hell is not real, that God will never act in wrath. But you must be warned that God will judge and his enemies will perish. And so to God's enemies, this is a song of warning. But it is also a song of hope to God's enemies. You may ask, how can this be a song of hope to God's enemies? Well, it can be a song of hope because just as God's friends can be revealed as enemies, this song teaches us that God's enemies can become his friends. Meraz was an Israelite village that faced God's covenant curse for unfaithfulness. Jael, on the other hand, was a non-Israelite whose husband had covenanted with Jabin, and yet she receives the covenant blessings. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. And so as you listen to this song, you realize that enemies and friends in verse 31 are not just defined as Israelites and Canaanites. For there were Israelites who lived like Canaanites, and there were Canaanites who came to live like Israelites. Enemy is therefore defined as one who rejects God as their God and lives in disobedience to him. And friend is defined as anyone who receives him as their Lord and Savior and now lives following him. And so we have another story, like the story of Rahab, the story of Ruth. Here we have the story of Jael that sings a word of hope to God's enemies. For their lives are singing, even you can become God's friend and rise like the sun. All you must do is embrace him by faith and walk in faithfulness to him. Do you hear the hope in God's command to his enemies in verse 3, or in the warning I, I read from Psalm 2, to be warned and, and kiss the sun. Why is he telling them to listen up? Why does he warn? He tells them to listen and he warns them because he is giving his enemies an opportunity to become his friends. His warning of judgment is actually an invitation to salvation. Just like the master with his great banquet. And so there is hope for God's enemies. This is one of the reasons God's friends are commanded to sing to his enemies. Not just to rejoice over them in triumph. This is not just a song of, you're all going to die. And we're thrilled about it. This is a song for them to join in the joy of the triumph. 
It's a song of invitation. And what is the song of salvation that we as Christians are singing? What is our great deliverance for which we praise our God? Is it not the song of the cross? We praise God for his deliverance from sin, from Satan, and from the world, which he has given us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian worship, therefore, is celebrating God's triumph over the world, but Christian worship is also intended to be a witness to the world. For we worship Christ crucified. And as we sing about and proclaim the glory of the cross, we are doing two things. First, as we sing and proclaim the cross and thereby point the world to the cross, we are warning them of the coming judgment. The cross is a warning. For those who reject Christ, the cross foreshadows their own doom, that they will die under the wrath of God. For the cross reveals God's wrath against sin, against idolatry and covenant unfaithfulness. But the cross is also hope. And so second, as we proclaim, as we sing about and point the world to the cross, we are inviting them to the salvation of the cross. For the darkness of the cross is what led to the light of the resurrection. God's friends who experience darkness now will rise as the sun rises in his might because God's only begotten son rose on the third day in the glory of his might. And this is the hope for all of God's enemies who turn in faith to the resurrected son. We see, we see this with the thief on the cross. As he looks to the cross, the enemy becomes a friend. This is the gospel, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for who? For the godly, for the righteous, for all those who said we're for God? No, it says Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So as you listen to this song in Judges 5, you need to answer are you going to die in unbelief and perish as God's enemy like Sisera, who is pierced by hammer and nail for his own sins? Or will you die by faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is pierced by hammer and nail for your sins? Receive God's invitation in Christ.
He is inviting you to the great banquet of salvation. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from or where you grew up. It doesn't matter how great and how often you have sinned. His invitation is extended to you. For God sent his son to tell all people of his salvation. Just like the master sent his servant saying, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Will you come and be saved? If you have not come to Christ by faith, I beg of you, I plead with you, come by faith, and he will gladly receive you. And Christian, I beg and plead with you, go to the highways and sing the song of salvation. Wherever God has called you to live Wherever your job is, whoever your family is, wherever you are going to church, sing the song of the cross. That's what God is sending you to do. He's telling you to go and make disciples of Jesus Christ. He is sending you to his enemies, just as you were once his enemy, to tell them about the cross, which is their warning, but is also their hope. Will you love God's enemies as God loved you while you were still his enemy? Will you warn them, not hoping they will perish, but praying that they will rise like the sun as he rises in his might? For the song of the cross is a song for enemies and for friends. It is a song of warning and of hope. And as it is sung, some friends may be revealed as enemies, but some enemies may also become friends. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that while we were still sinners, that while we were as idolatrous as the Israelites in the days of the judges, while we were your enemies, you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins, that he would be pierced by your wrath so we wouldn't have to be. Thank you. We give you praise, and may you give us grace to keep singing your praise all of our days. And Lord, I also ask that you would give us grace to go and tell more of your enemies the glorious message and song of the cross that they might, by your supernatural power, be made into your friends. We know you can do it because you did it with us. We pray that here in Kalamazoo, more enemies would become friends. We pray that on the campus of Western Michigan University, more enemies would become friends. We pray in the state of Michigan, more enemies would become friends. We pray in the United States of America, more enemies would become friends. We pray in this whole world, every tongue, tribe, and nation, that more enemies would become friends. We ask this. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.